0: Okay, so I might just have to um, give us a reminder, uh, social media is not a safe place to be, um, and it's also not the place where um, you should be posting, well, anything that you wouldn't want to stand before God the Father in the presence of God the Son by the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit and repeat. And so if you need a little social media check this morning, I'm just I'm just letting you know that it is aflame this morning with negativity. It probably always is. But I've been really struck by it um, this morning. And so let me just say, uh, if you if you have added which on it's just like on Twitter, right, you would at somebody. Okay, so if you have done that today or yesterday or the day before yesterday or you're considering doing it, I want you to pause for just a moment and recognize there's nothing that you do in secret. Nothing. Nothing. So God is reading your feed. He's reading your social media feed. And if you're not saying and doing things that are honoring to him and bearing positive witness to his son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if you're taking his word, if you are taking his word and you are manipulating it and you are using the word of God um, as justification for anything that's outside of his uh, divine character and will, I, you know, here, I got two words for you today. Stop it. These are the two, like, mama words today. Stop it. Okay. Whew. All right. That's that's because I spent four minutes on social media between the last hour and this one. What I really want to talk about right now um, is the death of J.I. Packer, I, I led off the first hour acknowledging the magnificent uh, life well-lived of John Lewis. And I want to lead off this hour um, recognizing the gift of the life of J.I. Packer. Uh, we actually, we air a segment um, every, uh, every day during this program, and it's called Knowing God. J.I. Packer actually wrote one of the most readable books on the subject of God-saving sinners, uh, and that book is called Knowing God. J.I. Packer died on Friday, just five days short of his 94th birthday. Uh, He was a lifelong Anglican. He was a Puritan scholar, um, highly regarded among uh, what I would describe as, you know, circles of Reformed Christians. Started his ministry in England, later moved to Canada. um, But his greatest influence, without question, has been in the United States. And um, if you were to ask him what... uh, what was the most notable achievement of his own life, although he wrote countless books over seven decades of ministry. This is the way that he uh, answered the question. He believed that his role as the janitor editor, general editor of the English Standard Version of the Bible— so if you are using an ESV, which I am using, uh, if you are using an ESV, an English Standard Version of the Bible, then J.I. Packer was the general editor of it. And he said— Uh, that it was likely his most significant work, quote, I find myself suspecting very strongly that this was the most important thing that I have ever done for the kingdom, because it helps people know God. If you haven't been in the Word of God today, let me encourage you to go spend some time in the Word of God in order that you might know God, because knowing God changes everything. Knowing God changes everything. Next up, Linda Mental, uh, Dr. Linda Mental, and I are going to talk about um, a couple of uh, a couple of topics. Um, we're going to lead off <clears throat> with the difference between cravings and hunger. Oh my goodness! I think she's about to stomp around in my rhubarb wheelhouse. We'll be right back. This is my fight song. Take the- Okay. We could just call this uh, the intervention or the confessions of an emotional eater, or we could call this a conversation with Dr. Linda Mental about cravings versus hunger. You can find what we're discussing today at drlindamental.com. Linda, welcome back.
2: Hey, your producer and I were having an interesting discussion about your reference to rhubarb. I think I've maybe eaten that once in my entire life. Okay. (laughs) Well, just just stay
0: away from it because it's all mine all of it. I'm, I'm trying to hoard it. I, I'm trying to get it shipped to me overnight. I have a problem. Okay. So, um, well, because the season is running, it's running its course. It's running to the end and sort of now I'm in like a rhubarb panic. Okay. Let's not talk about that. Let's talk about emotional eating because, uh, I think I should just go ahead and confess this is me. This is me. So, so talk with me as an emotional eater, um, about the difference, difference between cravings and hunger and how to get, my emotional eating under control.
2: Well, you are not alone. Um, this is a topic that I've been working with 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 clients and patients for years and years and years. Um, I've written about it in several of the books that I've written because so many of us, when we're upset or we're bored or even when we're happy, um, go to food and we use food as our medication. And, you know, the joke is, Carmen, that we, you know, we don't maybe go to pot or we don't maybe go to, you know, heavy drugs or drinking to medicate ourselves. We go to food in the church. So when we're feeling down, we're feeling low, we're feeling upset with life and we're stressed. Uh, there's a lot of stress eating going on. Um, as Christians, we just go to food instead and uh, use that to medicate ourselves. So it's it's one of those issues that a lot of us can develop. Um, I remember not connecting the dots to this when my brother was killed Early on in in my life, um, I didn't realize that I was eating as a response to the stress that I was feeling. So the first thing you got to think about here is, you know, uh, first of all, when you crave something, it's different than when you're really, really hungry. And I do spend a lot of time in in uh, books that I've written. Press pause before you eat was one of them, where I talk about what's the difference between hunger and actually having a craving. But one of the things that happens with a craving is you usually want foods like chocolates and sweets or foods that are rich in fat. Interesting that men actually crave red meats and pizza. Uh, there's some thinking that maybe men are craving, creating, uh, craving these type of foods because maybe this is what they had when they were growing up and these are comfort foods and things that remind them uh, of their moms. But When we're really hungry, it really doesn't matter what you eat. It's like, whatever, put something in front of me, good, that hunger is gone. When you're craving, all you can think about is that one food that you really want. So you start thinking about those brownies, and you think about, oh, that would be really good right now, and, you know, maybe I should go to the refrigerator and get some ice cream with that, or, you know, you just start thinking about all of that. But the important thing is with emotional eating is, what is it that's triggering you to eat at the moment? Because if it's not hunger, then what are you feeling? And and this is really what can be helpful to anybody who's listening is when you want to eat something, just stop and say to yourself, what am I feeling right now? Am I really hungry? Is my stomach rumbling? Am I kind of lightheaded? Do I have kind of a headache? Do I feel like, you know, I just got to get something? My blood sugar is maybe going low. Or is it just that I'm stressed, I'm upset, I'm bored? I need a distraction, and I want to medicate with food right now. If you can do that, if you can stop and ask yourself what is triggering you, that's going to help you a lot.
0: And then you talk about, um, you know, after sort of evaluating, what do you want to eat? And then what triggers your feeling um, to eat? You talk about waiting. Does the feeling of wanting to eat pass? Okay, If you wait 20 minutes or more. Now, right there, I would say, therein lies the challenge. Yeah. 20 minutes, 20 seconds, right? I mean, like, right, I had to wait 20 seconds. I got to hit the pause button for 20 seconds and then a minute and then distract myself with something else, right? Right. There is a, it's not that I'm just sitting there in front of the refrigerator for 20 minutes, Right. I am I am going and doing something else for 20 minutes to test whether or not I'm really hungry.
2: Well, yeah, it's so the risk research shows that if you wait that long, that that 20 minutes is because there's like a curve that happens. You start to really anticipate wanting to eat, wanting to eat. Oh, I've got to have it. I've got to have it. And if you can get through that time period, that urge or that craving really drops off so i did this i did a lot of this with when i was working with bulimic patients because you know there's this urge to just eat and eat a lot of food all at one time that's called a binge but i would get them to sit with me to talk to me distract them Um, we might you know play some music we might do some relaxation something to distract their minds and what they would say after about 20 maybe 15 20 minutes they would say you know that urge to just have that impulse to eat has really gone away. So this is tested by by science. So if you can do something, but you're right, you don't want to just stand in front of the cupboard with the cupboard. I did have a, a patient do that <laughs> one time. She said, I opened the cupboard and I stood there, and I put a timer, the kitchen timer on, and I waited. And I said, no, that's really, your brain is still engaged with whatever was in that cupboard that you wanted to eat. So probably not the best technique. So what you want to do is, is you know, acknowledge the feeling and then go do something. Distract the brain away from that uh, urge to eat. And it's amazing when you do that, you will start to go, oh yeah, I've totally forgot about it. Because it's really something that we do. We feel a void, we feel empty, uh, maybe emotionally empty, and then we want to fill it with something. And like I said, food, there's not a lot of stigma about overeating versus maybe medicating through alcohol. So we reach for the food, and then we develop this bad pattern of whenever I feel stressed, whenever I feel emotionally upset, or even when I want to celebrate something, I'm going to reach for food rather than developing other ways to either calm down your body or to distract yourself and do something. So you can do anything. You can just take a walk around the house, you know, just move to another room. You can pick up a book. You can start writing something. You can put on music. You can just call somebody, talk to somebody. You can do some kind of exercise, uh, you know, maybe just getting out of the house for a second. Um, and if you wait, if you do something during that t- period, 20 minutes later, you're going to forget all about that craving and you're going to be OK. So you have to break that habit. And that's the issue with people is you've got to break that habit of I feel something. I immediately go to the food. Um, once you can break that habit, you can break that connection in the brain, and then you can lose that emotional eating. And a lot of people struggle with this. Um, and so this is a really great little technique to help break that.
0: And once we break it, then we need to replace it with something else. And I think that the the distraction, using the, you know, cultivating a list of things that um, are are positively distracting. I mean, it could be serving someone else. It could be praying. It could be reading, you know, taking the 20 minutes to, to read scripture. Um, yeah. It, I mean, it could be doing the list. I have, um, I have found that, uh, you know, if I keep a list of things like projects that need doing that actually can be accomplished in a fairly short period of time, if I would just apply the time to do it, um, if I just distract myself with something on that list, then not only does the negative thing not happen, but a positive thing does happen.
2: Yeah, I, get something, I get something accomplished. Yeah, I used to have my patients put a list of 20 things they could do. We call them substitute behaviors. So Mm. 20 things that they can do instead of eating. And they would put it on their refrigerator. Because at the moment when you really have that craving, you're really not thinking a whole lot. So they would put this list on the refrigerator. And then I would say you have to pick one of those and you have to practice it. And why this is such a good strategy is because it really is teaching you something else to do to relax your body, to de-stress. To deal with negative feelings when they come up. And isn't that the goal? The goal is we all want to have healthy coping strategies when we're dealing with negative feelings or, you know, stress in our lives. So this is a good way to start to develop it. Just practice it one thing at a time and the brain will, again, learn a new pathway. And it will start to say when you're upset, it'll remember to do something different.
0: I love that. All right. Linda, uh, let's take a very brief break. And when we come back, um, let's take up a new topic, courtship, marriage and counseling. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
3: I see you in
0: Dr. Linda Mental, also known as the Relationship Doctor, she and I are continuing our conversation. You can um you can find all kinds of really great resources at drlindamental.com there's an article posted there you might want to uh you might want to check uh in relationship to the next conversation we're going to have the article Linda has posted is five upsetting things not to say to your partner. Um, Linda, uh, I sent you um, a, a link to an article that I read. It's a it's an entertainment-related article. Apparently, there's a program out there called 90 Day Fiance, which just in and of itself is a terrible idea. Um, but, but they're uh, apparently a 90 Day Fiance couple – um, is talking about how marriage counseling has helped them. I just felt like this was a good opportunity for you and I to talk about courtship, marriage, and counseling.
2: Yeah, and I, I would really... Let me just go through something that I think would really help a lot of couples listening to this. One of the most important things in dealing with a, ma- a marriage is that you have to learn how to deal with conflict. And if you can have good conflict skills, so many things get fixed in a marriage. So let me go through the four things that escalate conflict to a really bad place. So the first one is you start off and you're critical. You're nitpicking your partner. You're just being really critical of things that happen. Then what happens is both of you get really defensive. And so there's you're now blocking communication because it's just defending yourself. And if you do that over and over, so you have this criticism and then you get defensive, eventually what happens, Carmen, is people develop feelings of actual contempt for each other. So this is when you say, you know, why did I marry him? And I don't like him. I don't want to be around her. She makes me crazy. She's like her mother. All these things, you start to develop what we would call feelings of contempt. And couples that have contempt are really in trouble. That is the one thing that we see that is a predictor of divorce in couples. And then what happens, you get into that contempt, and then you just start to do what we call stonewalling, which is you Literally put up a stone wall, uh, I mean, figuratively put up a stone wall, and you're not talking to each other and you're turning away from each other, which is really dangerous in a marriage. So when I'm dealing with couples, I look at this escalating pattern of criticism to defensiveness to feelings of contempt to then stonewalling. And that's a big predictor for major problems in divorce. Now, there are antidotes to all of that. So if you're being critical, you need to stop and think and say, "I need what's called a gentle startup. I need to not be crit- critical of my of my partner. I, you know Jesus is the one who judges us, condemns us, you know whatever whatever's going on with that. We need to be gentle in our startup, and there are, there are scriptures. Proverbs says, "A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So this is a biblical concept of being gentle, trying not to be critical to really listen. And then in terms of defensiveness, it's the same thing. The, the antidote to that is, well, take responsibility. What is my part in this problem? Rather than putting up a defense, maybe I'm doing something. And uh, and James says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And then in Galatians, it tells us, for we're each responsible for our own conduct. So again, we're going to combat that defensiveness and then in terms of contempt, there just is no biblical place to be in contempt. I mean, this is a, a spiritual cancer. C.S. Lewis called it a spiritual cancer when you have pride and you, you feel contempt towards somebody. And we all know the, the very well-known scripture, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So there's no place in the believer um, to have that kind of contempt So the antidote to that is really an appreciation for your spouse, respect for your spouse, and dropping all that contempt. And then the last one on stonewalling, you really want to be able to turn towards your partner so dangerous, and I just can't tell you the number of couples that get into trouble because they get upset, they turn away from their partner, they talk to other people, they start to develop an emotional relationship with somebody else who's listening to them. And that's when we see a lot of affairs and emotional you know, distrust that goes on in couples. So again, if you can get that antidote to turning towards that person, persevering in that relationship, no matter how difficult it is, talk to that person and work it out because you made a covenant with this person and you need to be able to honor that by staying in the relationship. So hopefully that's a little, a little help this morning for couple's dealing with conflict and making sure they're not escalating your relationship to a bad place.
0: Oh, Linda, you redeemed, um, you redeemed the segment because I, I was, uh, uh, there was a chance I was going to just wander down into the weeds of the 90 day fiance, uh, Whole reality television series that I didn't even know existed, and apparently it's been on for seven seasons. So, uh, so well, thank you. You
2: didn't know it existed because I didn't either, and I didn't really want to watch that show after I no. saw the article. I was like, No, what is this? I don't want
0: to. I don't want to watch the show, but I am a little horrified that it's seven seasons in and it has like six spin-off series as well. So, I'm telling you, it's apparently a it's apparently a thing that um, you and yeah. I are not uh, not not aware of or into that's happening in the culture yeah. today.
2: Not good relationship advice. <sighs> so no. know, be sound in what we're talking about. You have to build a sound relationship, which we all know. Can that happen in 90 days? That's ridiculous. You know, I usually tell people, you should know the person that you're going to marry at least over a year. I always say, At least through holidays and through high conflict times, you need to be able to see that person in terms of how they respond over time to stress, to their families. Uh, You get somebody who doesn't ever deal with their family and talk to their family. That's a massive red flag for me. And I would say run, run, run from that relationship. So these crazy shows, you know, the, the one where you show up and you don't see the person and you marry them on site and this kind of thing, this is just Craziness, And I hope nobody takes any of that seriously and uses that as advice. Yeah, exactly.
0: Dr. Linda Mental, thank you so much. You guys should listen to her show. You should check out her website. Uh, read what she's writing about. DrLindaMental.com. We'll be right back. So many headlines uh, internationally that we need to cover today. We're going to focus with David Aikman here in just a moment on um, issues related to China and issues related to Iran. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
1: This is Max Locato. First Samuel sixteen seven says, Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Those words were written for misfits and outcasts. God uses them all. Moses ran from justice, but God used him. Jonah ran from God, but God used him. Rahab ran a brothel, Sarah ran out of hope, Lot ran with the wrong crowd, but God used them all, and David, humanized, saw a gangly teenager smelling like sheep, yet the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. God saw what no one else saw, a God-seeking heart. David took after God's heart because he stayed after God's heart, and in the end, that's all God wants or needs. Others measure your waist size or wallet. Not God. He examines hearts, and when he finds one set on him, he calls it and claims it. This is Max Locato.
3: My name is Bond, James Bond.
0: Joining me now, David Aikman, editor of Godspeed Magazine. Welcome back, sir.
3: Thank you very much. Good to talk to you again.
0: Uh, as always. Um, let's lead off today with China, and we're going to deal with several topics related to China. But let's start with this alliance between uh, President Xi and Vladimir Putin of Russia.
3: Yes, this is a very interesting phenomenon that has been growing up almost below the radar, at least in terms of Western coverage of it. For at least three years and probably much longer. And it grew significantly stronger to 2013 after Xi Jinping really cemented his power within China. And Putin and Xi have had more face-to-face meetings than any other leaders in the whole G20 scenario. So it's a a very close relationship and, of course, neither of them admits that it's an alliance. But in practice, it's essentially the combat because the Chinese and the Russians are developing a short-haul passenger airline using Russian engines. The two militaries have had a lot of cooperation. And each side backs the other up in its squabbles with the United States. For example, China backs Putin in his sort of encroachment in uh, Ukraine on the side of Russian nationalist rebels. And Russia uh, supports Xi in his uh, militarization of the South China Sea and his attempts to keep the United States Navy out of the area it's a very close practical relationship and one is forced to think back to the Stalin Hitler relationship that ended suddenly in 1941 when Hitler invaded Russia
0: so we're talking about two uh, nations that uh, that share a border they share a lot of of interests, and they share a uh, a passion for the undermining of American institutions, the American way of life, and uh, American prominence around the world. would that be would, would that be accurate?
3: that, that would be accurate I mean, you, you probably may have seen uh, many of your listeners may have seen this report of a sort of prophetic type dream by a pastor from Kentucky uh, who had a sort of prophetic vision of the Russians and the Chinese actually present in military force in the United States um, as sort of the chaos in America continued and the specter of something really catastrophic happening during the 2020 November elections. And if that happens, that will be a very, very serious development.
0: Oh, well, certainly. All right. Um, I'm concerned also about the alliance between China and Iran. But before we jump to uh, issues related to Iran, um, David, you and I have both uh, and many, many others have, uh, have watched and heard China's ambassador to the U.K. trying to deny footage of abuse uh, of Uyghur Muslims, we have had a similar um, uh, interview here uh, in the United States between China's ambassador to the United States denying to CNN comment- commentator Fareed Zakari um, those same allegations. So talk with us um, about what what we're seeing with our eyes uh, in terms of China's treatment of the Uyghur population, and yet China's absolute denials of these gross human rights violations.
3: Well, you've got a regime, namely China, run by the Chinese Communist Party, which has the standard policy of denying any facts that anybody else brings up about its behavior. And they absolutely won't admit that on the human rights level in regard to the Muslim Uyghur minority population, they have acted with indiscriminate violence and prejudice. They just won't admit it because to admit that will be to confess a weakness in the system which they simply won't do.
0: All right. Um let's take a, a brief let's take our break a little bit early so that when we come back we can pivot to a conversation about Iran, which China has announced an alliance with Iran, but we got all kinds of things going on in Iran, including I'm just reading this morning that Iran has executed an alleged CIA Mossad operative, or agent, uh, who they say helped spy on Kusam uh, Soleimani before his assassination. This is a serious escalation in terms of uh, the relationship between the United States and Iran and Israel, um, and so I'd love, to, I'd love to talk about things going on in Iran uh, after the break. I'm talking with David Aikman from Godspeed Magazine, and we'll be right back. Oh. A reminder that the reason that we talk about these kinds of international headlines is because we have a very different worldview than the nations about which we are talking. And so when we are talking about China and we are talking about Russia and we are talking about Iran, we are talking about nation states that uh, have a worldview very, very different than those of us who operate out of a democratic Christian Western uh, worldview. And so, China having forged an alliance with Russia and China having announced a 25 year alliance with Iran in just the last few weeks um, is significant. And so, David, let's pivot to a conversation about Iran.
3: Right. Well, Iran, of course, uh, has its most uh, strategic adversary in the United States, which has been against Iran since. Essentially 1979, when the Shah was overthrown by the Ayatollah Khomeini and his Islamist allies. So they regard anything, the Iranians regard anything that will limit the influence and power of the United States in that region as something very good. And the Chinese, of course, are completely sympathetic to that aspiration. They certainly also want to limit the uh, ability of the United States to affect Iran or any of its trade relationships with anybody. So you've got a, a built-in adversary relationship, which is, in course, of course, increased by that that China has had, as we discussed earlier this improving and very close relationship with Russia, particularly to the point that Chinese warships have taken part in maneuvers with the Russian Navy in the Baltic Sea, which is way out of the the range of the the East Asian circumference of Chinese influence. So that's a, a very troubling development, at least for Western allies.
0: I, I got to admit to you, David, um, when I think about, you know, China and Russia and Iran in any kind of, uh, of relationship with one another that is strategically designed to weaken not only the influence of the United States, but the influence of democracy around the world. Um, and then I think about all their proxies and all the other, you know, naughty actors around the world who uh, are aligned with their way of thinking, you know, i got to tell you, it's um, going to send me to my knees for not only some time of prayer, but, you know, real consideration about America's place, you know, globally.
3: Of course. It's something we have to pray for all the time, because, particularly because there's so much unrest within the United States and uh, polarization at the political level. So we really need to see the American population come together in a way that it hasn't been um, closely allied with itself for quite a long time.
0: I'd love to get your um, your thoughts on what's going on in Turkey related to the uh, Hagia Sophia. We had an extended conversation on the program on Friday with a uh, former member of the of the Turkish parliament, uh, Eiken Erdemir. But I would love to get your perspective on this because this is not just a, f- a significant facility, but this is a major transition in, ter- in terms of the position of Turkey um, in-, in a pluralistic sense.
3: Well, of course it is, because when uh, when the Turkish secular government under um, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk came to power after World War I, He secularized the country and severely weakened the ability of the Islamic world to have any major role in Iranian politics. And so, Iran essentially became secular under um, the—Turkey, sorry—became secular under Atatürk and his successors, including the military regimes that changed when the Shah was still in charge. And so the assumption of a president in the form of, uh, uh, of the current leader of Iran, who Ayatollah, uh, Erdogan. Ayatolic Erdogan. Yes, Prime Minister Erdogan, uh, uh, Turkey, is a serious infringement of the secular policy towards Religion in Iran, Turkey, that was started under Ataturk, a very strange development, and a very disturbing development, because it not only indicates that Iran, in sorry, Turkey internally is becoming more religious, but the kind of religiosity of the Turkish government is focused on a very. Um, what's the word, Islamist aspect, uh, worldview by the uh, by the Turkish leader. And that's going to have huge impact on the neighborhood of, of the Middle East.
0: It's always curious to me, David, when countries like, like Turkey pivot so dramatically away from uh, a secular and and often Western worldview, um, and they pivot; they take such a hard turn toward a fundamentalist Islamist agenda, um, and they're not just interested in that agenda being carried out within their borders, but globally, um, or certainly regionally. Um, and then, and and yet, how the world shrugs as if, eh, that's just you know, that's just going on over there, and um, and we shouldn't worry too much about it. I, I would say that um, the the devolution of Turkey, in particular, from uh, a a good participant in in you know as a NATO ally to the position that it is it is in today, um, is something that has happened on our watch in very recent years and should be of grave concern to many of us.
3: It should exactly, but I think the previous administrations did not pay a great deal of attention to attention to this. Not only uh, Democratic under Obama, but the Republican administrations under the Bush um, family. So it's been the tension has been dwindling in both partisan watches, and I hope President Trump is able to give a lot more focus and really put pressure on the on the Turks as well as the Iranians to lessen their grip on other parts of the region that they're trying to influence in this Islamist way.
0: All right, and then we have to do this one really fun good news story quickly before we let you go. Captain uh, Tom, a hundred-year-old veteran, um, has been knighted by the Queen.
3: Yes, that's a a wonderful thing which uh, everybody in the UK has cheered resoundingly because he's raised millions of pounds of support for the National Health Service in its uh, struggle to resist the COVID-19 crisis. And he's done so by walking back and forth in his garden, you know, several times a day, hundreds of times, if you like, and everybody applauds him, not only for his courage and tenacity, but for his modesty and unassuming personality, which apparently came up in his conversation with the Queen, because he wouldn't say what they talked about. But it's obvious that she said something to him, really recognized his remarkably humble and yet heroic character.
0: It's, uh, it's precious. I hope people will check it out uh, online, the pictures of it. Captain Sir Tom Moore knighted uh, by the Queen of England. It is uh, it's precious to behold and just something that, you know, you just want to take time to, to celebrate these particular moments. David Aikman, thank you so much, as always, for joining us.
3: Thank you very much, Carmen. Have a wonderful
0: week. And you as well. We're thankful for you. We'll be right back. All right. seems like a good opportunity to uh, recognize that each and every one of us as a Christian uh, is commissioned in much the same way that a knight is commissioned. You have been commissioned by Christ to go forth into all the world and be an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven. And so, uh, you know, you, you are this day royal. You are a child of the king. You are an ambassador of the kingdom. And so even if you, uh, you know, you didn't have a ceremony in Windsor, in the court of the palace in Windsor by the Queen of England, you have this amazing royal uh, opportunity as a son or daughter of the living God. To go forth today as an ambassador of the King and the Kingdom, to show forth the glory of God in ways that will uh, surprise the world, in ways that will honor the King and advance the Kingdom principles in this generation. So, that would be a, a day uh, that would be a day worthily spent. So, lead a life worthy of the gospel today. Lead a day that's worthy of the calling of a Christian. Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio.